Good morning. Happy Father's Day. My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at Horizon, and it's a, just a great joy to have you in worship this morning with us on Father's Day. There's so many other places you could be right now, and you chose to worship with us, and we are just thankful for that. Uh, I wanted uh, to start today, and we've been doing this series on rest, and uh, back when I was a youth pastor several years ago, one of my favorite uh, lessons when you're a youth pastor, you can get away with a lot of uh, little uh, metaphorical uh, sermons of sorts, and um, the, the one Sunday night when we were gathering with the youth, and we were, we're talking about John 10, 10, um, John uh, chapter 10, verse 10, and the, the scripture says that the thief comes in the night to steal, kill, and destroy, uh, but Jesus says that, that he comes so that we can have life and have a life abundantly. So that day, I, I gave all the youth uh, two dimes, 10, 10, yeah, see, see, here we go. As a, the reminder that, that Jesus wants us to have life abundantly. And at, at the end of the day, that's really what this sermon series of rest is about. Is So often we just think rest is something not possible. And then it quickly becomes something just unimportant in our lives. Um, but God wants us to have something good. And that's really where we started this first seri- the first week of this series. Erica shared about how God loves us some more. That we need to pause. It's a gift. Rest and Sabbath are a gift from God. And then last week we, we looked at some just really practical ways, some ways we can set priorities in our lives that we can experience that abundant life. And so today we're going we're gonna to close out this series looking at what God can do in our lives when we actually do rest. What is it that happens to ourselves when we, we take that moment to pause, to listen, to be in relationship with others, to experience joy. And so we're going to be looking today at a, at a story of a guy named Saul. It's in Acts chapter 9. And at this point in Saul's life, he is just a, a terrorist in some ways. Um, he has, he's been deputized by the officials to literally go out and hunt down Christians and arrest them and kill them. And he's got a letter saying that he's able to do this. And the story we're going to look at today is the story of, of Saul's conversion, of his awakening to Jesus. And you may know Saul by his name later. Um, he eventually becomes Paul. And Paul is the, the prolific writer of the New Testament. Most of what we call the New Testament are letters that, that Paul wrote to those early churches. And so we're going to read here from... Acts chapter 9, uh, starting at the third verse. If you've got your Bible with you, uh, feel free to, to take it out or pull out the Bible app um, and, and take notes, underline at any time. So here's the third verse. During the journey as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are harassing, came the reply. Now get up and enter the city. You be told what you must do. Those traveling with him stood there, speechless. They heard the voice, but saw no one. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes, but he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and neither ate nor drank anything. 
And so Saul has this experience. He hears his voice, and he's literally knocked to the ground. And he spends three days blind. And for some of us, this is quite literally a, a forced rest. Um, the closest thing I've ever experienced to this in my life was my first year in seminary. Uh, we were required to go on a silent weekend retreat. And you may be thinking, Chris, I know you pretty well. You're a pretty quiet guy. Like, you could probably go a whole day and not ever say a word and you'd be fine. Um, but just literally the thought of, like, not even being able to speak if I wanted to speak was quite frightening to me. The second thing was, this was also a Saturday in September. And if you know anything about me, Saturday, like, over a Saturday, I can't speak. I'm in a retreat center. There's no, like phones and uh, no TVs, and I'm like, no talking and no college football, like, really? Like, maybe I'll just drop out of seminary this weekend. <laughs> and I literally hated it, and I wish I could tell you that silent retreats are awesome, and you should sign up for one next week, and I, I can give you a name of a retreat center locally that you could go to, but I, I absolutely hated it. It was the worst time of my life. And so I can only imagine what, <laughs> what Saul was experiencing Three days, a long weekend of being blind. Because that, that silence in my life over that weekend, it, it forces you to start to deal with the junk in your life. Sabbath rest gives us space to deal. You've got the quietness. You've got that stillness. The stillness to know who God is. I spent time in prayer that weekend. I spent time just thinking about my lives and my, my priority. And it's that space that we begin to have to deal with who we are and who we're being in our lives. Just yesterday, I had a conversation um, with a guy in our church named John. And John's a, quite a, a, an accomplished uh, marathon runner. And we actually happened to, before we knew each other, run a marathon together, uh, I think four or five years ago now. And uh, John may have uh, finished about an hour before me in the marathon. And he may have uh, won the marathon, I think. Uh, and he was telling me about how important rest is to marathon training. And, and there's, there's two kinds of rest for marathon training. And when he was telling me about this, I was like, man, that's exactly how we need to rest in our lives. And so there's, there's the rest that you'd have each week. That weekly rhythm of rest and marathon training where you, you, you're going to push the mileage and build up that stamina to run. But at the same time, you've got to take some time off when you start to experience fatigue. When you start to you feel something pulling in the back of your leg or your back, you might have to take an extra day off that week and not push it any further. But so often in our lives, don't we, man, I'm just going to, at least I do this. The old football player in me. I'm just going to run through this. It's, you know, surely I'm going to rub a little dirt on it. And it's going to feel better tomorrow. It's not going to matter. And we do that in our lives, right? We just keep pushing. Even though junk starts to pile up, we don't ever take time to deal with it. And the second kind of rest he was telling me about is the, the rest, uh, he called it the post-cycle rest. So coming right off a great marathon race, you had a great time. And you're like, man, I feel great right now. I should just sign up and run another one in like in three or four weeks. I'm like in great shape. Like it'll be, like I'll just even do better if I just keep running. And maybe I'll put in, run a few more miles this next week. 
And the thing is, you got to have a plan. You can't just start running a marathon every weekend because you're going to ignore that junk, those fatigues, those moments where you're really too tired and you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt those around you. And that's what resting does. It gives us the space in our lives to deal with junk. The junk that piles up, we've got to have some proper rest. The Bible calls this kind of rest where you have space to deal with your junk, the wilderness. You see in the life of Moses, he had to go out into the desert before he could lead God's people to freedom. The Israelites themselves wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before God could do something new in their life. They had to deal with the junk. Even Jesus himself, before he began his public ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness. He had to deal with the junk before he could get on with the work that was at hand. The first thing that rest gives us is space to deal. Space to deal with the things in our lives, the junk, the mess that we've made. The second thing that rest gives us is space to imagine. So let's keep reading on in our story of Saul. In Damascus, there was a certain disciple named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision. Ananias, he answered, yes, Lord. The Lord instructed him, go to Judas's house on Straight Street and ask him for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias enter and put his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias countered, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man. People say he has done horrible things to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's here with authority from the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. The Lord replied, go. This man is the agent I have chosen to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. So we see in this part... That Saul used that time to be in prayer. That time of dealing with his junk to be in prayer. And now he sends, God sends Ananias to Saul. As part of this process of imagining, Ananias gets this message that Saul has something new for his life. No longer is Saul going to be known as this guy that's doing horrible things to the people that follow Jesus. God tells Ananias, you're going to go and you're going to tell Saul that he can imagine a new way of being. A way that I'm going to use him for something greater than he's ever imagined. He's going to take my name to the Gentiles and the Jews. And I, I think this, this whole idea of, of space to imagine really could be just summed up in you got to have some space in your life to, new, to do new things. Because new things can't happen without space to do new things. A couple weeks ago, uh, there's a family in our, in our church that just moved. And uh, Matt was taking a, a job with Facebook. And he was telling me that he'd gone out um, for a few weeks of training out at their, uh, the, the home campus in, in California. And 
it literally was everything you would have imagined uh, of this, like what a Silicon Valley office building would be like. Um, he said it was exactly like uh, the social network movie. There was just like free food over there. It was just like people playing ping pong over there. And, um, but he said the coolest part about it was he walked past an art studio on the Facebook campus. And Facebook had a, an artist and resident that would be there and the employees could go in and, and make art and uh, be instructed by the artist and resident. And he was telling me that they did this because they, they believed that their employees needed an outlet to be creative, to imagine in a way that then would make their work more productive and higher quality. And I was like, man, that is so awesome that a company would give you the space to imagine a new possibility. There's a Harvard Business School professor, uh, Ronald Heifetz, that, that says that this is called time on the balcony. That we all in our, in our lives have to go up on the balcony because so often we're either working in the business or working in our lives that we never have time to work on the business and work on our lives. We're so busy just doing, doing, doing that we don't even realize it at times what it is that we're doing. We've got to pause. We've got to have that space to imagine. We've got to have that rest that, that Saul experiences to pray, to have friends that come around us and say, this is who you can be. And in my own life, I, I had quite a storm one year. Uh, I, like I said, I was a youth pastor for a number of years, and I, I felt like I kind of maxed out like what I wanted to do in youth ministry, and I like really wanted a new challenge in my life. And so, and so there was this beautiful old church in Nashville, and I was like, man, I really want to be the pastor of that church. The neighborhood around it was starting to change, and I was like, I think this might be an awesome opportunity for me. And so I literally. I dragged Erica along a lot of times, started praying circles around this, like I was Joshua going around the walls of Jericho. And we would drive past it, and I'd be like, man, I would love to be the pastor of this church. We'd go on a run, and I'd point it out, man, that's a beautiful looking church over there. And I finally got the opportunity to be the pastor of this church. And it wasn't exactly everything I had imagined. Needless to say, old churches have lots of unique problems. Um, the, there's a, a slide of it. It was a beautiful church. Um, it was built in 1891. Um, it had survived the great 1998 East Nashville tornado. It was about the one of the build, only buildings around that was like still standing. Um, the wall was knocked off on this uh, east side of the building, but yet the the music, the sheets of music on the organ, which was the oldest organ in Middle Tennessee, was still there. And they had rebuilt the wall and the stained glass windows in 1998. After that, it had survived like the Great East Nashville Fire of 1913. It was this beautiful historic church. It was one of the largest churches at one point in, in all of Nashville or all of Tennessee. And I was like, man, I want to be the pastor. This is, I mean, this is a cool looking church. Look at that. Like, this is the kind of church you want to get married in. And who knew that stained glass from 1891 has to be re-leaded, and that costs like half a million dollars. Um, that there was, the old, when you have the oldest organ in all of Middle Tennessee, 
it has to be repaired. And apparently repairs on organs are really expensive. Who knew that? Like, can we just get a guitar maybe? <laughs> um, and the church was in rapid decline. It only had a handful of members left at this point, And I'd way underestimated the amount of energy it was going to take on my part just to keep us afloat, to keep the doors open. And I was like, God, I'm exhausted. Like, there just isn't enough of me to be out in the community, meeting enough people. There was no way I could walk enough people across the street to make, carry their groceries for them, to make them want to come to church, and figure out how we were going to have a budget that could even begin to deal with the repairs that we needed. Oh, I forgot the basement flooded every time it rained in the summer. Luckily, it wasn't in Florida because it didn't rain quite as much. And that stress just began to wear on me every week. And uh, as you can see in this picture, uh, it had this beautiful bell tower. And one of the cool stories after the, the East Nashville uh, tornado was that the organist climbed up into the bell tower and played the bells after the winds had died down. And it was a sign for all of the community that there was hope that things were going to be okay. And so one afternoon, I climbed up this crazy looping spiral staircase. Like, these are the cool things you, you actually have when you're a pastor of an old church and you have the keys to everything. I climbed up the staircase. I unlocked this, like, trapdoor hatch. And I climbed up into where the bells were. And I could look back down towards downtown Nashville. I could look across the street to a park and there were kids playing and literally climbing up to that balcony for me was that moment I realized that yeah this has been a stressful time and I've given it my all but God's doing something in my life right now that's going to prepare me for what's to come and it's it's where we Eric and I learned the foundations of what it was to be a community to be a church and to be here in horizon right now I had to step back I had to go up climb that bell tower to look at what God was doing in my life because everywhere I looked things looked like they were failing and closing and crumbling and that was the only thing I knew at that point and so I went up I had the space to imagine a different way and so the, the final thing that rest gives us then is, is space to give of ourselves so when we keep reading in Acts Ananias went to the house. He placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me. Jesus, who appeared to you on the way as you were coming here, he sent me so that you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, flakes fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After eating, he regained his strength. He stayed with the disciples in Damascus for several days. Right away, he began to preach about Jesus in the synagogues. He is God's son, he declared. He rested and he regained his strength and he found a new purpose. This mission now was no longer about what Saul wanted in his life. To see Christians rounded up and arrested. But now God gave him a purpose that was greater than his own. 
I think so often in our lives, we, we think we have this, this finite time. And all of this time is, is, is meant for me. But it, God actually asks us to give a little bit of that time for something else. And it's, it's this false sense that we have that I can't give away any of my time. I can't give it to anyone else. Because we don't live with enough space to actually ever give anyone our time. I know there, there are some of you right now in this room that the Holy Spirit's nudging you to do something new. That feeling the, that's maybe deep down that's like, man, I've been thinking about this change in my life, doing something different. The Spirit is nudging you, is moving you right now. And you're like, I don't even know how to possibly begin to do it because I don't have the time. got to rest. We've got to create margin. We've got to create that space in our life if we're ever going to do something new. We've got to have that space. And for Saul, that literally was, God kicked him to the ground and made him stop. He had to stop to do something new. If he would have just kept going, he would have never imagined this newness coming in his life. And in the end, this week when I was in my own devotional time, I, I realized that none of this really even matters if we're not rooted. Or if we're not rooted in something. This verse uh, really struck me this week from Colossians. Um, this is a letter that, that, that Paul wrote to the church in um, Colossia. And what you have to know about this place is they were beginning to have some economic woes. They were really famous for making these beautiful garments, but then there was this other town not too far away called Laodicea, and Laodicea was starting to make some prettier ones in some different colors, and these folks were starting to feel the economic pressure, that their city was starting to decline. And this is what Paul writes to them. So live in Christ Jesus, the Lord, in the same way as you received him. Be rooted and built up in him. Be established in faith and overflow with thanksgiving just as you were taught. See to it that nobody enslaves you with philosophy and foolish deception, which conform to human traditions and the way the world thinks and acts rather than Christ. The world's going to tell you you don't need to rest. You can just keep working. Look where I got by working so hard. But what is that going to leave you at the end of the day? If we're going to model ourselves after Christ, even Jesus himself went and spent time alone with God. How are we rooted in our rest as well? So let us pray. God of grace and peace, we thank you for the gift that is rest, to pause, to be in relationship with you and with our neighbors, to find enjoyment, to imagine a new way of being. 
God, help us to remember who we were created to be. Give us rest that we may be recreated in that image. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.